Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, the podcast where we do things excellently. We are talking about book uh, 10, chapter 35. How do you think... Wait. Uh, how do you... Sorry. How do you think you would handle a battle of this scale if you were put in charge? Ah. Oh, terribly. I've got no reason to believe that I would do anything correctly in a situation like this. Uh, would you try to micromanage like Napoleon or delegate and acquiesce to those around you like Kutuzov? Um, Kutuzov tires in the afternoon and is served dinner. What kind of toll do you think a day like this would take on a man? How long do you think you could hold command before succumbing to exhaustion? Interesting questions today. Um, oh, Kutuzov's quite old. He's an old man, you know. I don't think it's um, really reasonable to say that, you know, even a young man would be exhausted from a role like this. So him being exhausted, pretty understandable. Wolzgen, the imperial adjutant, comes to Kutuzov and tells him that the day is lost. Uh, to which Kutuzov explores and doubles down in his certainty of their victory. He gives commands to attack the next day. How do you think this coming battle will play out as compared to one we just witnessed? Interesting questions tonight. Rahul the Invader says, Through back-to-back chapters, Tolstoy is able to demonstrate contrast in leadership between Napoleon and Kutuzov. Kutuzov seems to be a 20th or 21st century leader who understands the limitations of his reach and trusts in delegation and provides emphasis on spirit in the troops over tactical nitty-gritties. He is not your micromanager. That doesn't mean he is a mere spectator as well. Uh, the episode with Wolzogen shows that he is ready to take matters into his own hands when his line of thinking is challenged. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Kutuzov. He's kind of like a... Wait. Wait, wait and watch. And he, he never tries to make something happen, does he? He just waits and watches. And if in doubt, just wait. And it's almost like that act of waiting out the enemy confuses the enemy because the enemy thinks, oh, they must be up to something. But really, no, he's just kind of, he's just kind of waiting and watching. And then he'll strike at an opportune moment, but only if it is opportune. He won't try to create that moment um, but it is great to see Kutuzov versus Napoleon I think what a great matchup two different strategists going head to head um, alright let's read the next one shall we uh, which goes where is it here what are we up to 36 goes like this Prince Andre's regiment was among the reserves which, till after one o'clock, were stationed inactive behind Semenovsk under heavy artillery fire. Toward two o'clock, the regiment, having already lost more than 200 men, was moved forward into the trampled oat field in the gap between Semenovsk and the Knoll Battery, where thousands of men perished that day, and on which an intense concentrated fire from several hundred enemy guns was directed between one and two o'clock. 
Without moving from that spot or firing a single shot, the regiment here lost another third of its men. From in front, and especially from the right, in the unlifting smoke, the guns boomed, and out of the mysterious domain of smoke that overlay the whole space in front, quick hissing cannonballs and slow whistling shells flew unceasingly, at times as if to allow them to respite, a quarter of an hour passed, during which the cannonballs and shells all flew overhead, but sometimes several men were torn from the regiment in a minute, and the slain were continually being dragged away and wounded carried off. With each fresh blow, less and less chance of life remained for those not yet killed. The regiment stood in columns of battalion 300 paces apart, but nevertheless the men were always in one and the same, oh, sorry, were always in one and the same mood. All alike were taciturn and morose. Talk was rarely heard in the ranks, and it ceased altogether every time the thud of a successful shot and the cry of stretches was heard. Most of the time, by the officer's orders, the men sat on the ground, one having taken off his shako, carefully loosened the gathers of its lining, and drew them tight again, another rubbing some dry clay between his palms, polished his bayonet, another fingered the strap and pulled the buckle of his bandolier, while another smoothed and refolded his leg band, bands and moved his boots on again. Some built little houses of the tufts in the ploughed ground, or plaited baskets from the straw in the cornfield. All seemed fully absorbed in these pursuits. When men were killed or wounded, when rows of stretches went past, when some troops retreated, and when great masses of the enemy came into view through the smoke, no one paid any attention to these things, but when our, our artillery or cavalry advanced, or some of our infantry were seen to move forward, words of approval were heard on all sides. But the liveliest attention was attracted by occurrences quite apart from and unconnected with the battle. It was as if the minds of these morally exhausted men found relief in everyday commonplace occurrences. A battery of artillery was passing in front of the regiment. The horse of an ammunition cart put its leg over a trace. Hey, look at the trace horse. Get her leg out. She'll fall. Ah, oh, they don't see it. Came identical shouts from the ranks all along the regiment. Another time, general attention was attracted by a small brown dog, coming heaven knows whence, which trotted in a preoccupied manner, in front of the ranks, with tail stiffly erect, till suddenly a shell fell close by, when it yelped, tucked its tail between its leg and darted aside. Yells and shrieks of laughter rose from the whole regiment. But such distractions lasted only a moment, and for eight hours the men had been inactive, without food, in constant fear of death, and their pale and gloomy faces grew even paler and gloomier. Prince André, pale and gloomy like everyone in the regiment, paced up and down from the border of one patch to another, at the edge of the meadow beside an oat field, with head bowed and arms behind his back. There was nothing for him to do and no orders to be given. Everything went on of itself. The killed were dragged from the front, the wounded carried away, and the ranks closed up. If any soldiers ran to the rear, they returned immediately and hastily, 
The first Prince Andre, considering it his duty to rouse the courage of the men and to set them an example, walked about among the ranks, but he soon became convinced that this was unnecessary and that there was nothing he could teach them. All the powers of his soul, as of every soldier there, were unconsciously bent on avoiding the contemplation of the horrors of their situation. He walked along the meadow, dragging his feet, rustling the grass, and gazing at the dust that covered his boots. Now he took big strides, trying to keep to the footprints left on the meadow by the mowers. When he counted, counted his steps, calculating how often he must walk from one strip to another to walk a mile, then he stripped the flowers from the wormwood that grew along a boundary hut. Sorry, a boundary rut rubbed them in his palms and smelled their pungent, sweetly bitter scent. Nothing remained of the previous day's thoughts. He thought of nothing. He listened with weary ears to the ever-recurring sounds, distinguishing the whistle of flying projectiles from the booming of the reports, glancing at the tiresomely familiar faces of the men of the 1st Battalion and waiting. Here it comes... This one is coming our way again, he thought, listening to an approaching whistle in the hidden region of smoke. One another. Again, it has hit. He stopped and looked at the ranks. No, it has gone over, but this one has hit. And again he started trying to reach the boundary strip in sixteen paces. A whiz and a thud. Five paces from him a cannonball tore up the dry earth and disappeared. A chill ran down his back. Again he glanced at the ranks, probably many had been hit. A large crowd had gathered near the 2nd Battalion. Adjutant, he shouted, order them not to crowd together. The adjutant, having obeyed this instruction, approached Prince Andre. From the other side, a battalion commander rode up. Look out, came a frightened cry from a soldier, and, like a bird, whirring in rapid flight and alighting on the ground, a shell dropped. With little noise, within two steps of Prince Andre and close to the battalion commander's horse, the horse first, regardless of whether it was right or wrong to show fear, snorted, reared, almost throwing the major, and galloped aside. The horse's terror infected the men. Lie down, cried the adjutant, throwing himself flat on the ground. Prince Andre hesitated. The smoking shell spun like a top between him and the prostrate adjutant, near a wormwood plant between the field and the meadow. Can this be death? thought Prince Andre, looking with a quite new, envious glance at the grass, the wormwood, and the streamlet of smoke that curled up from the rotating black ball. I cannot, I do not, wish to die. I love life. I love this grass, this earth, this air. He thought this, and at the same time remembered that people were looking at him. It's shameful, sir, he said to the adjutant. What? He did not finish speaking. At one and the same moment came the sound of an explosion, a whistle of splinters as from a breaking window frame, a suffocating smell of powder, and Prince Andre started to one side, raising an arm, and fell on his chest. Several officers ran up to him, from the right side of his abdomen, blood was welling out, making a large stain on the, gr- on the grass. The militiamen with stretchers 
who were called up stood behind the officers. Prince Andre lay on his chest with his face in the grass, breathing heavily and noisily. What are you waiting for? Come along. The peasants went up and took him by his shoulders and legs, but he moaned piteously, and exchanging looks, they set him down again. Pick him up. Lift him up. It's all the same. Cried someone. They again took him by the shoulders and laid him on the stretcher. Ah, God, my God, what is it? The stomach? That means death. My God, voices among the officers were heard saying. It flew a hair's breadth past my ear, said the adjutant. The peasants, adjusting the stretcher to their shoulders, started hurriedly along the path they had trodden down to the dressing station. Keep in step, oh, those peasants, shouted an officer, seizing by their shoulders and checking the peasants, who were walking unevenly and jolting the stretcher. Go into step, Fedor. I say Fedor, said the foremost peasant. Now that's right, said the one behind, joyfully, when he had got into step. Your Excellency, hey, Prince, said the trembling voice of Timokin, who had run up and was looking down on the stretcher. Prince Andre opened his eyes and looked at the speaker from the stretcher into which his head had sunk deep and again his eyelids drooped. The militiamen carried Prince Andre to the dressing station by the wood where wagons were stationed. The dressing station consisted of three tents with flaps turned back, pitched at the edge of a birch wood. In the wood wagons and horses were standing... The horses were eating oats from the movable troughs, and sparrows flew down and pecked the grains that fell. Some crows, scenting blood, flew among the birch trees, cawing impatiently. Around the tents, over more than five acres, blood-stained men in various garbs stood, sat, or lay. Around the wounded stood crowds of soldier stretcher-bearers, with dismal and attentive faces, whom the officers, keeping order, tried in vain to drive from the spot. Disregarding the officers' orders, the soldiers stood, leaning against their stretchers and gazing intently, as if trying to comprehend the difficult problem of what was taking place before them. From the tents came now loud, now loud angry cries and now plaintive groans. Occasionally dressers ran out to fetch water or to point out those who were to be brought in next. The wounded men, awaiting their turn outside the tents, groaned, sighed, wept, screamed, swore, or asked for vodka. Some were delirious. Prince Andre's bearers, stepping over the wounded who had not yet been bandaged, took him as a regimental commander close up to one of the tents and there stopped waiting, awaiting instructions. Prince Andre opened his eyes and for a long time could not make out what was going on around him. He remembered the meadow, the wormwood, the field, the whirling black ball and his sudden rush of passionate love of life. Two steps from him, leaning against a branch and talking loudly and attracting general attention, stood a tall, handsome, black-haired, non-commissioned officer with a bandaged head. Eagerly, oh, sorry, bandaged He had been wounded in the head and leg by bullets. Around him, eagerly listening to his talk, a crowd of wounded and stretcher-bearers was gathered. We kicked him out from there so that he chucked everything we grabbed the king himself cried he looking around him with eyes that glittered with fever if only reserves had come up just then lads there wouldn't have been nothing left of him i tell you surely 
Like all the others near the speaker, Prince Andre looked at him with shining eyes and experienced a sense of comfort. But isn't it all the same now, thought he. And what will be there and what, what has there been here? Why was I so reluctant to part with life? There was something in this life I did not and do not understand. Alright, there's another chapter for you. Oh, Prince Andre, not in good nick right now. Alright, have your say about that one over on the subreddit. Thanks for listening, I'll see you tomorrow.